Hello, everybody, and welcome to the July 14th episode of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today, we're going to be focusing on policy, specifically European policy, which we have been very negligent on. So I'm excited to get started on this topic. Uh, joining me today is Eli Mitchell Larson. He is launch director at Carbon Gap. And then I also have Lee Beck. She's the senior director for Europe on the Clean Air Task Force. Hello, Lee. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. And then as always, uh, this is Radhika Mulgafkar. I am the head of supply and methodology at Nori. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we are going to today um, talk about the EU and what's going on. And I think one of the biggest things that the EU is working on is this um, removal certification mechanism. And so they are working on a certification standard for carbon dioxide removal to complement its existing climate plan. Um, and when it's completed, it will likely represent the largest jurisdiction with a comprehensive policy plan to scale up carbon removal. Lee, I'd like to start with you to just maybe give us a broad overview of the program and what its goals and you know, how the UU is trying to achieve its goals. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for this question. Um, maybe I can quickly introduce the Clean Air Task Force as well. We're a climate NGO who is working on a variety of clean energy and climate technologies. Um, we're right now, we were founded 25 years ago in the United States, but have since expanded to the US, uh, to Europe, uh, Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America. And um, our work is really driven by optionality. That means each country or region will likely require a different technology portfolio of options to decarbonize. And we want to ensure that we're commercializing all options to really ensure that uh, we have all technologies available preventing path dependency. And for us, of course, carbon dioxide removal is one piece in the puzzle that can help us potentially mitigate for those sectors that have no other alternatives such as aviation or limited other alternatives as well as of course draw down um, co2 from the air that's already in the atmosphere and um why we're really excited about the um, cbr certification mechanism in europe is it's a pioneering effort to set a gold st standard on how to measure CDR um, or actual carbon removal. And um, from our perspective, uh, we're really excited because this is obviously the groundwork, the pioneering groundwork that needs to be done to ensure that we can actually um, measure and deliver real and permanent carbon dioxide removal. So from our perspective, there's a lot of hype right now. There's a lot of conversations around these technologies, but not all carbon dioxide removal methods, as we'll probably explore in this conversation, are created equal. So we need to make sure that we have strong regulatory framework to build trust in these technologies and methods and also um, create a pathway to incentivize them so we can build a deployment policy around them. So I'll stop here. I'm sure Eli has um, many thoughts about this as well. Yeah, Eli, um, one, please introduce your organization. Let, let our audience members know what Carbon Gap does, but also, yeah, let's get into a little bit of the scope of the scheme and kind of the policy issues that the EU governments um, have to resolve before the rules take effect um, 
I think on this side of the pond, maybe we have a little bit of a feeling that the EU is very bureaucratic, takes a long time to move forward. So curious about how things are moving. Thank you, Radhika. So, and thank you for having me. I'm Eli mitchell Larson. I'm the launch director at Carbon Gap. And we are uh, a new NGO. We were launched at COP26, just focused on driving European leadership on carbon removal. So we try to build coalitions and build understanding of the full breadth of carbon removal solutions or methods across all of the different capture methods and storage methods. And we also work to, uh, un to conduct really targeted policy advocacy to try to drive European leadership and European support for carbon removal. Um, and yeah, diving right in. I mean, I think what your listeners on your side of the pond will find really fascinating is that you know, in, in the European policymaking apparatus, they really do things right in, in the sense that they're starting from the baseline. The carbon removal certification mechanism, forgive us if we start to say CRCM and, and get a bit rapid fire here, uh, is it's the foundation on, wh on which all other pillars of uh, European climate policy, like, for example, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, the EU ETS, uh, advertising regulation, all of these other elements of European regulation will reference the carbon removal certification mechanism. They will ask the question, hey, do you need to measure how much carbon was removed and stored? See the CRCM. So it's hard to overstate the importance of this. And I think in terms of the scope, you asked about the scope. I mean, we had some issues in the beginning, I think, because we looked at the you know, large consultations that were conducted and, and they included things like carbon capture and storage, which of course you know, is usually not uh, a CDR. There's that kind of uh, Venn diagram of overlap. But overall, the scope is pretty good. It's basically any method for taking CO2 out of the air or upper ocean and storing that CO2. How do you measure that? And I think there are still some open questions about how do you break down that big universe of carbon removal methods into buckets that are sort of uh, logical for building a certification mechanism? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is really uh, taking all of the learnings and science and, and measurement and reporting and verification work that the academic community has done and turning it into something real. Uh, so there are some very significant uh, politically relevant issues that, the, that Brussels and eventually the member states, when they hopefully adopt this regulation, uh, this directive, will have to resolve. And you know, I'll I'll just name one because, of course, we are at this Nori podcast, which is which is great. Um, but there's many others that Lee can can bring up and we can bring up later. But I think you know the real implication is is European land management, and particularly with the kind of frankly the need to help uh, basically ensure a living wage for rural livelihoods. That's why the common agricultural policy exists, and so there is an imperative to basically support European agriculture, not least because of the security concerns that we're seeing popping up over the past few months. And so it's critical that that happens. It's also critical that to the degree that those incentives are being tied to how much carbon is being absorbed and stored in the soils, that that's done in, in a legitimate way. And we have some really exciting ideas that we've been putting to the commission. And we'll get into it later, but we've actually been really pleased to partner with the Clean Air Task Force and their Brussels team uh, on some convenings that we've been holding in Brussels to really you know, talk to the commission, try to act as a sounding board and try to put forward some, some real constructive proposals to make sure that this is the premier and sort of first of a kind comprehensive carbon removal certification mechanism in the world. 
Oh, I could go so many different ways with all that great information. But I think my first question for you both, uh, and I'll start with you and move over to you, Eli. I'll start with you, Lee, and then I'll move over to you, Eli, is do you get any pushback about carbon removal as a policy because of the moral hazard uh, question? I tend to ask a lot of my guests about it, but I'm curious within the EU if you hear we shouldn't be focused on carbon removal at all right now because we really should be 100% focused on emission reduction, which we haven't yet figured out at a policy level. Lee, your thoughts and then Eli, your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there is certainly um, this notion that, you know, it's not a silver bullet. We can't sell it as that, especially um, CATF focuses both on the land use and the technological side, though I'm more uh, an expert on the technological side, it's not been demonstrated at the megaton or giga megaton scale, let alone gigaton scale that we need. But I think from our perspective, um, the clock is ticking to address the climate crisis. And from our perspective, um, climate is also an infrastructure problem. So we need to understand today what the technologies and what the infrastructure is that we need to achieve a climate neutral Europe. And then we need to plan for a rollout. So while of course the, it will always be cheaper and always be more important to deliver mitigation through comprehensive asset transformation um, across the sectors, we also need to plan for gigaton um, carbon removal in the European Union. And so looking at historical scaling timelines of innovative technologies that have taken decades, we really need to lay that groundwork today. And so turning it, taking it back to, to the um, certification mechanism, this is really the first step, as Eli said, right? We're, we're laying the baseline, we're setting the expectations. And so first of all, we are also with the EU engaging in this conversation, engaging in this, delivering this regulatory framework shows there is political recognition that we will need these solutions, but there's also political um, recognition that we need to create pathways and create regulatory frameworks to build trust, as I said. And so what we're hoping will come out of this um, certification mechanism is a framework that ensures that carbon removals are real, that they're measurable, that they are additional to mitigation, that they're permanent and do not result in leakage and also avoid double counting. And from these principles, this would really hopefully not only create the pathway for incentivizing technologies, a suit of technologies, recognizing that not all of them are equal, but also help us break through the dichotomy or the conventional fault lines between natural and technological CDR methods, but also help us to guide the private sector and the voluntary market initiatives, which um, I think many NGOs, including CATF, regard as skepticals or with a grain uh, of salt, and really ensure that we're also through regu um, regulatory, uh, rigorous regulatory mechanisms, building trust in these technologies and break through this idea that um, it, we, we, we're too, starting too soon because we need to do mitigation first. The clock's ticking, we need to tackle the climate crisis and we need to keep an open mind for innovation. Eli. Amazing, I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I think 
I don't want to dwell too much on the moral hazard piece. I think it comes up a lot. I think at Carbon Gap, we recognize that issue. We, we would say the greater moral hazard would be not to develop these different methods that we're clearly going to need. I often say, you know, when did the clock start? Did it start at the 1992 Earth Summit? Did it start at the 2015 Paris Agreement? Or did it start today? Because even if we follow a net zero trajectory, we stop dangerous climate change. All that carbon we're putting up from 2022 to the net zero date, which we really hope will be 2045 or sooner, uh, we will still, you know, want to bring the atmosphere back to to a state like today. So I think there, there's it's unequivocal that we'll want to have these methods available. It's also true that we need to make sure they don't undermine that fast, often cheaper, more efficient climate action that Lee was was discussing with emission reductions. I think in in the European Union, or specifically. There's a lot of excitement, uh, certainly in the circular carbon economy. I hesitate to use that term because I think it's frankly been kind of co-opted by some slightly unsavory actors, but the principle is great. It's that we can put carbon into the built environment, into long-lived products. That's widely accepted, right? So I think as Lee was alluding to these kind of fault lines where different groups have different preferences about what methods they like and what methods they don't. And I think there's some that are really gaining that support. And so the other thing I would add about this kind of uh, panoply of different carbon removal methods, they're also different. And, and as Lee said, they have strengths and weaknesses. What I think is important to recognize is just as they have different characteristics around their durability, the longevity of storage, how easy it is to constrain things like indirect carbon leakage, which is so tough in the land sector, they also have different levels of readiness. And I don't just mean that in the sort of technology and readiness level sense about how mature is a different type of direct air capture. I mean it in terms of our level of certainty that a carbon benefit has been delivered. And this is something that I think will kind of let everyone breathe out a sigh of, uh, of sort of relief, I hope, in just saying, you know, we don't have to fight tooth and nail to make sure that people hear about our favorite method and our favorite solution. And often you see this happen with the DAC folks saying one thing and the, the, the reforestation folks saying another. There are some qualities of stored carbon that we can directly measure and observe. And that's what durability means. It's the risk of reversal on an annual basis. And it's a, it's a physical quality, just like whether uh, uh, my water bottle is red or green. I can also measure durability of stored carbon. And we can, we can predict that reversal risk. We can measure it in, in the lab. We can use historical data. And once we're able to make those comparisons, we can actually use legal and financial mechanisms to try to ensure permanence, even for those riskier types of storage. So I think what's so exciting about the CRCM, the Carbon Removal Certification Mechanism, is it creates a platform. If the governance is done right, we'll be able to kind of onboard these different methodologies for different met methods as they're ready. So maybe offshore kelp you know, isn't quite ready for a, a, a full-blown certification methodology that can be used inside of the the EU ETS, for example, but it will be ready, we hope, and it, and it needs certain things. So what we really pushed for in our uh, consultation response, what we've been advocating for, to the commission, is that we really have this ability to onboard different carbon removal methods, even if they're at different stages of being able to demonstrate that they've delivered a carbon benefit. If they're not, if there's questions about, you know, soil carbon measurement, et cetera, well, then let's put the resources in to close those gaps in understanding. And that's exactly what a body like the European Commission or the entity we hope will be created by the CRCM. It might sit within the same entity that manages the EUETS. Maybe it'll be a new entity. We're still working through that. Uh, but whatever entity it is, that's going to be the, the 
entity that can hopefully direct research funds as well to help shore up the ability to develop methodologies for the kind of new carbon removal methods. Because, and I'll, I'll end with this, there's a bunch of carbon removal methods we haven't even thought of yet. You know, there's, there's not just one type of DAC, there's four, and there's probably going to be four more in the next 10 years. So we can't predict what the kind of winners, so to speak, or what the leading carbon removal methods will be. That's why we need to support all of them. We need to find a place for all of them uh, while ensuring that integrity, making sure that nobody's making claims that are you know, not legitimate on the backs of that removal. Lee, I think you have something you want to add? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to um, home in on one point um, that uh, Elon and I both have mentioned that all, not all um, carbon removal methods are created equal and have different durability or different um, kind of length of permanence. And I think where we're what we are really interested in looking at is breaking down, as I said, the dichotomy of nature versus technology and look at shifting portfolios. So how, what can we do today? We can already incentivize carbon removal methods, but we have to recognize their limitations. And this is how we have to measure them and then also incentivize them to really ensure that we have a shifting portfolio of different carbon removal methods that are helping us um, deliver on climate targets, but without overstating um, their ability to durably remove carbon and also without, of course, making them subject to um, greenwashing criticisms. So I think there is really a, a, a responsibility from um, NGOs like uh, Carbon Gap and Cleaner Task Force and Bologna and others in Europe to really show what a responsible um, carbon, responsible but innovation forward um, carbon dioxide removal portfolio looks like. So you both, um, I think, mentioned really important like technical pieces to carbon dioxide removal, the, the durability, the technological readiness, the permanence. I'm curious what I didn't hear a lot of conversation around and whether it's even maybe applicable is like the social acceptability of the carbon removal. So uh, Eli talked about land management. So when you do these things, bringing farmers along, feeling like they're part of the process, ocean-based, obviously there's a lot of passion around ocean. So how are your organizations approaching that social piece of the question and how is the EU commission approaching that piece? Um, Eli, I'll start with you on that. Such an important point, Radhika. And I think we'd point to some of the amazing work by uh, thinkers like Emily Cox, who have really delved, delved into this. Because I think our perspective at Carbon Gap is, you know, first and foremost, engage everyone. So, you know, we want to talk to youth groups. We want to talk to kind of uh, some of the environmental groups that are, you know, not as thrilled about some of these solutions and have really legitimate concerns. We want to be maximally inclusive in terms of hearing what those concerns are. I think we also feel really strongly that the best way to actually measure public acceptance is to try building this stuff. So when you've got a tangible project, project somebody can look at, that changes everything. And so this isn't from the commission or from Brussels, but we're really excited about this project that we're on the advisory board for in uh, Switzerland, where the Swiss government has basically funded this sort of end-to-end -end demonstration where they'll capture carbon from waste, uh, waste treatment, wastewater treatment. So it's coming from human waste, right? So it's biogenic. And, you know, bottle it up in isotainers, drive it to the border, train it to the, train it to Rotterdam, bring it on a boat to Iceland and store it there. And I think, you know, at a modest scale, 
but with public funding so that all the costs have to be revealed, right? Like it's one thing to have Climeworks or one of these companies do this. If it's a government funded project, the whole world gets to benefit from the knowledge that's delivered. And I think if we can kind of show these examples of CO2 caravans, we can really demystify what this looks like. And I think, uh, you know, similar things for some of the regenerative farming practices. I had a really interesting um, experience yesterday, actually, meeting with some farmers in the UK who are really advanced on the kind of regenerative ag side. And they were being almost pitted against a group of precision fermentation advocates. So people that believe in this whole thing about, you know, building proteins from bacteria, like sort of precision manufacturing food components. And it was really, what was so amazing was although there was a lot of kind of tension, these kind of proactive farmers were saying, hey, listen, if I can have a distributed small uh, targeted fermentation plant on my farm and I can actually make food that way, like I'd consider it, like, is it safe? Can I add flavor and like brand it in my own way and generate a premium? Like they were curious. So I think, you know, people are more open than we think but they have to be approached with respect. They have to be able to see, touch, and feel the method that's being shown. And a lot of care has to be taken to protect against the sort of downside risk. And that's where I think at the European level, at the Brussels level, the CRCM, if it's, I, I would say that's something that we, Lee, you know, Clean Air Task Force, Carbon Gap, Bologna, Negative Emissions Platform, all of us, we probably need to do more of is really make sure, hold the commission to task and eventually the parliament to make sure that the governance and the consultation that this CRCM will have will include those voices, particularly of folks, you know, and, and, and thinkers and scientists and really anybody outside of Europe where a lot of these projects might get deployed. That's a classic, you know, failure where if the MRV and the methodologies are developed in Europe for Europe, but the projects are built elsewhere, that's, you know, massive red flag we need to, so, so, uh, maximum inclusivity on all of those different uh, axes. So Lee, I wanna to pivot to just your organization a little bit. I know you uh, the Clean Air Task Force submitted a public comment. What kind of was the emphasis of your submission and um, what do you think some of the ways different re recommendations might differ? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to go over this and also incorporate some of my thoughts on the previous questions. So I think in general, um, our recommendation, obviously, uh, we're in line with what I already said, creating trust that there's a lot of opportunity and that the EU as a climate superpower should really aim to set this global gold standard so other countries can copy it. And um, for this, I mean, the principles that should be guiding such a certification, as I said, it has to be real, measurable, permanent, and there's an additionality um, in, of, of removals in addition to those that are already required by existing policies and regulations, avoidance of leakage, avoidance of double counting. And we included also a piece that is about sustainability so that we, um, that the negative externalities that can potentially stem from social or environmental implications of CBR deployment are addressed through strict regulation that we ensure that the deployment of CBR does not result in any net harm to the environment or people. And, but we also see that this um, CBR certification mechanism 
might be evolving as um, there's more additional, there's additional scientific evidence, technologies are scaled. And so what we're really also recommending is that um, the certification mechanism not only establishes clear institutional roles to oversee and implement the framework that ensures, of course, robust governance and compliance, but also that there's advisory boards at the EU level which ensure on the one hand, the harmony across the block and high standards, but also um, could have different forms. So there could be a scientific advisory board to achieve excellence with regards to scientific evidence and rigor. There could be an advisory board consisting of market participants who are really implementing technologies or um, working at voluntary carbon markets, but also the civil society stakeholders really have to have their perspective in this conversation. Of course, the EU is also right now as part of the sustainable carbon cycles communication, which was released just before Christmas last year, looking to uh, calling on experts to really form an institutional role of experts. And then um, we're also, of course, hoping that the EU can further clarify how the certification mechanism will potentially feed into voluntary and compliance markets and how this is supposed to evolve over the next decade. So you can see like this is what we've seen so far from European Commission is an initial start and there's a lot more questions that will need to be addressed. And so we've thought through this, but we're also, I think at Clean Air Task Force having worked through multiple iterations of policies um, in, in multiple countries, we are seeing that, you know, this is embarking on this climate um, mitigation and carbon removal journey is something that we've never done before. So we need policy to evolve, to become stricter, to become more rigorous, and to also be able to be flexible to take into account and be changed in case it isn't working. And I think the Europeans are already on a very good path towards when we're looking how solar was commercialized in Germany with new policy iterations every two years. So there's a very promising um, environment here, but from our perspective, this is this is, we're really looking at this as 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 a pioneering effort that we need to make sure we have many as many experts and perspectives at the table as possible. But really, the outcome must be to to deliver um, the ideal impact for climate in society. Thanks, Lee. That was um, just a, just a small small little a bit of the stuff this policy has to accomplish. Um, so I want to pivot now to the UK, which is the non-EU part of this conversation um, today, and really learn more about what they're doing. Because as I understand it, last week, the UK government sought public input on its own carbon dioxide removal effort. And this um, policy effort aims to find business models that will help CDR scale by the end of this decade. I have to say, from my very, I know, American perspective, I don't hear a lot about European and UK CDR startups. I hear a lot about American startups. So I'm curious about this. Um, the text of the release finds that the significant barrier to scaling up CDR is the absence of a predictable revenue stream for negative emissions. Notably, it also says that the cost of deploying these techs is borne by polluting sectors to compensate for their remaining emissions. So Eli, what do you think about like more of a business model focus versus kind of a policy focus that the, that the um, UK is taking? And does this mean that they're confident that the technical innovation is gonna happen in their country 
um, kind of on their own or what are they thinking? So first of all, shout out to all the uh, UK carbon removal providers like Future Forest, I'm blanking on their new name, is it Undo? Uh, Origin Power, there's a whole host of them. And I think you're absolutely right. There's kind of, we should have some more friendly transatlantic rivalry. And there's, you know, some great accelerators that are funded by Climate Kick and Switzerland. So there's a lot of activity in Europe and we're hoping at Carbon Gap to keep pushing for policy and, and uh, financial support to keep that innovation wave cresting. Um, the UK history with removals is fascinating and it's really I think quite impressive the way they've approached it. So, you know, the UK was the first country with a climate change act in, two, in 2005 to really actually tie their own hands and mandate a, a trajectory towards net zero with this body, the Committee on Climate Change that has enormous powers to make recommendations of, of successive carbon budgets. And so I think they came to the realization that they would need really lots of removals sooner than other countries. I mean, look at the goal by 2030. I think the UK has said they wanna be removing five million tons per year of high durability carbon removal with car with high durability carbon removal and the European Union has sort of soft promised the exact same amount in the sustainable carbon cycles communication but that's not you know enshrined anywhere yet so I think the UK has quite a bit of ambition and I think the business models language might be a little bit um, confusing it, it definitely was for me at first what they really mean is no they're not counting on those costs to come down they know that the only way to make those costs come down is to do what Lee was alluding to with the you know, German Energiewende and the, the power of deployment incentives, right? The power of government to provide a, an incentive that has three things, a fixed price or a very you know, narrowly constrained price, a long contract, and an off-taker that you can trust. If a deployment incentive has those three things, it can work and it can do what you know, Greg Nemet so beautifully has shown in his How Solar Got Cheap website and book, it can bring the cost of, of energy innovation and technologies way, way down. And so this consultation from the UK government is asking the question, logistically speaking, we would like to provide a deployment incentive. We would like to pay you upon delivery of high durability carbon removal. And how should we do that? Should it be a backstop price? Should it be a kind of fixed contract for difference? There's all kinds of details and you know, economists are gonna have a field day analyzing which is gonna be the most efficient. And, and we're still working on, on our own consultation response, but it's good news. It means the UK understands that its initial 100 million pounds that it provided for kind of carbon removal, um, removals innovation, which is a really powerful program that's just kind of midstream right now. They know that that's not enough. They have to provide an incentive to some of the more mature CDR methods so that the cost can come down with that deployment incentive over time. Uh, and so we are very excited about this consultation. We're thrilled that Bayes has, has structured it the way they have. And so we'll be very keenly following it uh, to its conclusion and beyond. Um, so Lee, most of our listeners are US-based and so they're kind of very familiar with the US government efforts to support CDR, none of which have tied the cost of deployment to industry. Um, is this kind of as notable as it seems? And how important is it for a government to ensure that polluters bear the cost of CDR? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, from our perspective, there is often this notion with decarbonization that polluters have to bear the cost, which is certainly right through regulation, through um, compliance markets. 
However, what we're seeing is that in the absence of innovative technologies, um, polluters uh, never had um, this opportunity or this ability to actually, or to be forced to deploy these technologies, right? So the EU ETS is a good example where um, certain high emitting industries and power plants receive a certain amount of free allocations of emissions certificates. And in the US, you know, we have to admit there's not no comprehensive climate policy, right? So um, right now we're seeing governments play a little bit of this, governments and companies play this chicken and um, kind of this game of chicken where governments are not really sure how to enact more stringent climate policy and companies are saying, well, without technologies, we can't really decarbonize, but also not going the extra mile to show steel on the ground and that they can actually implement these technologies, right? So for us, um, there is at Clean Air Task Force, there's really a clear distinction we need to make between innovation incentives, commercializing technologies, as Eli already explained, and comprehensive climate policy. And the theory of change goes, which has um, also already been demonstrated for, for example, power plant regulation um, in, in the past, is that if we can deliver the lower or lower the cost of these technologies, then it will become more easily for governments to um, regulate, to require the investment in these technologies, to require the deployment, but also it will make create a bigger stakeholder base around these technologies because all of a sudden they're commercialized, they're available, they can be deployed, right? And so um, from our perspective, it's really important right now that we invest in innovation that has global gains. We only have to commercialize these technologies once. If we can do it between the US and Europe, they will be available at lower cost to everyone else across the globe. But then really quickly, we need to come in, especially in the United States, with much more stringent climate policy, which of course is in the current political environment uncertain. But I think what distinguishes private se the private sector in Europe and the US is in the US, it seems like the private sector is playing for time, as in there are a few first movers that are taking the incentives that are available today for them today to decarbonize, to transform their assets or to um, deploy, put, make draw up plans at least to deploy large-scale carbon removal, while others are seeing, calculating, looking at the political environment and calculate maybe it won't be in the next, you know, four years or six years or eight years that we'll get a comprehensive climate policy, but it will come. And so I think there's a little bit of a slower uptake. However, in Europe, with very clear roadmap towards the climate neutral Europe, it, and the UK is the same He's a very clear roadmap. The UK has um, has reduced emissions by a larger share than any other advanced economy. I think uh, companies are much more incentivized to think more holistically how they can keep their social license to operate and also continue to survive in a climate um, constraint in a in a climate aligned. Um, marketplace. And so this is, I think, the key differences um, between the US and Europe. And certainly at some point, we will have to require that polluters will have to pay. And there's also, you know, between Eli and myself, there are conversations with others around the carbon take back obligations. Again, this requires new uh, policy environments, new pol climate policy instruments, which no one has pioneered before. 
So uh, Lee was alluding to a little bit of the gridlock in the US uh, political system, which we're all very familiar with. But Eli, I'm kind of curious, the UK is also in the midst of some transitions, if you will, and their government is definitely going through some changes, along with the broader EU kind of political scene with obviously the war in Ukraine. How do you imagine these political wins will impact CDR development, if it will at all? Maybe it's so enshrined it won't matter. Well, yeah, I challenge listeners to imagine a political environment in which all of the major parties are supportive of climate action. It's almost impossible to imagine, right? But that is the case in the UK. And I think, I mean, that's a bit glib. There's certainly big differences. And I think you know, what, what's been so amazing in the UK since the early 2000s when the Climate Change Act campaign was really kicking off is this has not been a particularly politicized issue, right, in the UK. That, unfortunately, might there might be some intimations that, that, that that's changing. Some of the contenders in the kind of horse race at the moment for the prime minister role have uh, expressed kind of anti-net zero views in the past. So I think, you know, I don't want to speculate on, on politics. I want to sort of focus on the levers that we have. The UK did something really powerful by creating the Committee on Climate Change, this independent body with enormous power, really, to set and recommend. <laughs> I always remember my first, uh, one of my first weeks at Oxford, I, I went to a talk by Lord Deben, who's the chair of the Committee on Climate Change. I knew nothing about this. And I asked a question at the end, which was, you know, as an as a <laughs> American, how can uh, a committee tie the hands of MPs and the, and the voting public. How is that constitutional? And I was uh, immediately reminded that the UK doesn't have a constitution. So um, it's a really fascinating uh, setup where this committee makes recommendations and the, the government then needs to follow them and can be held accountable if it doesn't. So uh, I think regardless of, of who's in power, like Lee was saying with the EU, I mean, the EU does an amazing job of providing that clarity of a roadmap so industry can start to shift because they know what's coming. Uh, the UK in, in a similar way. So I think there's some stability across, you know, with the next election coming, if there is a change in, in the party in power, um, regardless, some of these, you know, levers are already here. So we want to focus on the existing commitments that have been made, the clear ambition to lead on carbon removal in the UK, uh, and, and make sure that, you know, that momentum is kept up. And, and to your point earlier about social acceptability and engagement, a lot of work is still needed in the UK, particularly given that, you know, this was the hotbed of a lot of amazing activity from Extinction Rebellion and, and Insulate Britain and, and Fridays for Future, you know, really radical climate action that made a massive difference. You know, everything from people gluing themselves to the wall of the, of the, the department responsible for climate to, you know, holding up the IPCC 1.5 report, reading it out loud. I mean, this, this really changed the conversation. It really shifted the Overton window. And uh, those groups definitely need to be consulted. They need to be involved and engaged in the conversation around removal. And they, they haven't been as much to date. And that's, I think, a, a failing of the, the other parts of the environmental movement that are pushing for these, these solutions. So we need to make sure that they're part of the conversation regardless, and, and especially as the political situation changes. All right, Eli, I'm gonna let you take us out because I know that you wanted to talk about a few other of the UK GGR policy developments. So can you very briefly walk us through some of the ones, you know, that you felt like highlighting for our audience? 
Well, I'll go quick because we actually have an event next week in partnership with the Open Air Collective uh, just on UK greenhouse gas removal policy. So we'll be doing a little overview then. But the one point I wanted to make was on this uh, business models consultation. So this is about you know the government asking the public, how do you want us to dole out these incentives for carbon removal? And I was maybe being you know I was being very positive about how they've structured it earlier. I just want to make clear that you know we haven't won the key battle yet. And to me, that battle, I'm curious what Lee thinks about this. You know, it's important to us that the policy incentives, the deployment incentives that government puts out focus on the outcome that's being delivered. So not any specific carbon removal method, but the outcome, which is taking CO2 from the air or upper ocean, storing it in reservoirs where the reversal risk is vanishingly low. So high durability, very, very permanent uh, removals. That's for this consultation. Of course, on the land sector side, there's you know, other policy movements uh, in play that we can touch on. But uh, you know that's not a, a done deal yet. So we're really calling for and trying to make sure that the result of this policy is, is a solution, is, is a policy that can incentivize lots of different forms of carbon removal methods that can actually deliver the same thing, which is this high durability removal. There is a particular focus and interest in the UK on leading on bioenergy, which you might think is a bit funny because the UK is the world's number two timber importer. You can guess why there's not a lot of biomass here. <laughs> Most of it uh, vanished long ago. And so, you know, it doesn't really make sense. I, I think Sweden with their reverse auction for BioCCS, that's a really amazing play, right? They've got vast forests, working forests that they can rely on. You know, in the UK, we, we really hope that we aren't pushing specific solutions uh, because of, you know, existing elements that have already been set in motion. I won't speak specifically to them. So I think um, if we can make sure that we are defining what the outcome we want to deliver is, giving a fair price for that outcome, and then let the sector compete to come up with all kinds of creative ways for removing and storing carbon that can deliver that same outcome to the atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, I think we agree with everything that Eli just said. Um, I think in general, uh, the one piece that I would take away from this conversation is since we covered a little bit of the US, what the UK is doing is Europe is that I already said we only need to commercialize the technologies once, but there's also a lot to learn in terms of policy mechanisms and what is working, what is not working, um, how can we tweak. Of course, there's you know intricacies that are uh, very um, unique to each country. In the US, it's the tax code. In other places, it's more of a subsidy, but I think the general notion of how this could be working um, can be similar across um, different countries. So one thing that we'd like to see more engagement is as we're looking at multinational com companies looking to deploy technologies in multiple countries, um, but also NGOs engaging is a robust exchange, as Eli was saying, with Open Air Collective and Carbon Gap, CATF with Carbon Gap and Bologna and other NGOs really at the forefront of this issue. Carbon 180 is another example in the United States. It's really having a lot of exchanges on how we can deliver the best policy because it can save us a lot of time and can help um, policymakers inform. And so this is really one thing that we're hoping this can, we can lay the groundwork for this moving forward at the Clean Energy Ministerial Mission Innovation Meeting or the what's also now called the Global Clean Energy Action Forum in September, all the way to the roadmap of COP27 and COP28 where innovation 
and innovative solutions will certainly be on top of the agenda. So I think closing out with this, we really need to ensure that we're saving time and taking the best and the most working policy so solutions and uh, proliferate them globally. Well, with that, I thank you both. Um, before we end the show, we always like to do a little bit of good news. And so today, um, you know, we talk, we obviously are a carbon removal show, but we all also know emission reduction is the number one priority. And so in April, the US hit a record 28% in renewable energy. And it, that is amazing news for this country. We are seeing that the renewable energy from wind, solar and hydroelectric dams has risen from 8.6% in April of 2001 to 28% in 2022. So we're making progress, costs are coming down and that's all good news for our, what we're all working on, which is to mitigate and stop climate change. With that, Eli, Lee, thank you both so much for joining the program. I am really looking forward to seeing where your, um, where your NGOs and this policy moves forward in both um, the UK and EU. So thank you both. Thank you, Radhika. Thank nice you to so see much. And for all of our listeners, we uh, look forward to chatting with you in the future. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>